Section 33 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Chapter 10. Hungary and the Slavonic Kingdoms by Emil Reich. Part 1. In the generation preceding the rise of the Reformation, the Magyar and Bohemian kingdoms underwent an internal decay that finally, in 1526, led to their incorporation with the empire of the Habsburgs, while Poland, though far from being sound or strongly organized, continued to maintain her imposing position against Turks and Tartars on the one hand and Muscovites and Germans on the other. The decay of Hungary and Bohemia was unexpected and has always offered one of the most perplexing problems of modern history. About the middle, and still more during the 6th and 7th decades of the 15th century, both kingdoms seemed firmly established. The one, Hungary, in the immense basin of the Middle Danube. The other, Bohemia, together with Moravia and Silesia, on the vast plateau of the great watershed of Central Europe. Their rulers had real international importance. Their armies were numerous and well-disciplined, and their administration and revenues furnished them with ample means for making war or securing peace. Yet, within a comparatively short period, the prospects of the two kingdoms were blighted, their independence as national states was lost, and both were made to swell the rising imperial power of a dynasty that a few years previously had seemed to have lost the last vestige of its pretensions to greatness, and that had, moreover, repeatedly been worsted in the field and in diplomacy by both Bohemia and Hungary. The power of the Habsburgs during the 16th and 17th centuries is intimately connected with, and conditioned by, their acquisition of the crowns of Bohemia and Hungary in 1526, and since that central fact of Austrian history has, at the same time, also told on most of the international currents of European history, its cause, that is to say, the decay of Hungary and Bohemia during the last years of the 15th and the first 26 years of the 16th century, must necessarily be viewed as possessing a more than local or temporary importance. A glance at the map of Europe in the period just indicated will suffice to show that there were, in Central and East Central Europe, no less than four serious aspirants for a comprehensive monarchy, which should comprise all the fertile countries of the Middle Danube, the Upper Elba, and the Upper Oder. The Dukes of Bavaria, the Archdukes of Austria, the Kings of Bohemia, and the Kings of Hungary had long been bidding, intriguing, and warring for the great prize. The spoils went to the House of Habsburg. The burden of the narrative to be attempted in this chapter is implied in this one historic result, and only by a comprehension of its gradual accomplishment can the more or less incoherent events which passed over the scene of southeastern Europe before the advent of Luther, Charles V, and the great popes of the Counter-Reformation be made really intelligible. Thus, a clear solution, one might almost say a technical answer, may be found for the problem, why Austria, and not Bavaria, Bohemia, or Hungary, 
was to become, in 1526, the political center of gravity of a part of Europe where, for geographical and historical reasons, small independent states could not well hope for enduring existence, and out of which Poland was to retreat behind the odor, leaving Central Europe unaffected by her influence. All personal or accidental events and causes were overruled by one potent general cause working on behalf of the Habsburgs. However bad the tactics of the Austrian rulers, however insufficient or dishonorable their means, they surpassed their rivals in respect of political strategy, more particularly in the period when, all over Europe, international forces had a decided ascendancy over local or national influences. To this remarkable result, the shortcomings of their rivals contributed perhaps more than their own superiority in political insight. The glaring and fatal mismanagement, or rather neglect, of foreign policy by Austria's three rivals rendered fruitless all their efforts for the consolidation of their states. In approaching the melancholy history of Hungary and Bohemia from 1490 to 1526, one cannot but be struck with the analogies, amounting to complete resemblance, both in the circumstances and in the institutions of the Czech and Magyar kingdoms in the 15th century. In natural conditions, in number and quality of population, and in the conjuncture of circumstances, historical and historico-geographical, there is indeed a great difference between the two countries. The Magyar are Turanian, the Czechs an Aryan people. In their languages, their customs, their music, they have little in common. The Czechs have always been, and were especially in the earlier half of the 15th century, profoundly troubled by religious movements of their own. While we can detect no parallel in Hungary to the rise and progress of the Bohemian Hussites, the international position of Bohemia was centered in a close, if latently hostile, relation to the Holy Roman Empire, the King of Bohemia being one of the seven electors. The claims to overlordship over Hungary put forward by earlier emperors were mere pretenses. Bohemia, after the fashion of small states hard-pressed on all sides by an overpowering empire, was naturally led to intensify her powers of resistance by fanatic nonconformity, and her religious warriors, Siska, the two Prokops, held large parts of central Germany in terror for several years, 1419 through 1434. In Hungary, there were no such motives for religious isolation and fanaticism, and the relations of the kings of Hungary to the German emperors were purely international or political. Yet notwithstanding all these differences, there is, in historical antecedents and in institutions, an unmistakable similarity between Bohemia and Hungary. Until the beginning of the 14th century, both these countries were under native kings, Hungary till 1301, Bohemia till 1306. Then followed in both of them foreign dynasties, in Hungary the Angevins, in Bohemia the Luxembourgs. And so it came about that in both the crown was made elective. In both countries during the latter half of the 14th, and the former half of the 15th century, the estates won political ascendancy, and in both, the protectorate of successful leaders in war or politics led to the throne. In Hungary, in the person of Matthias Corvinus, 
in Bohemia and that of George Podebrad. Neither of these very able princes was, however, fortunate enough to found a new dynasty, and both were succeeded by two princes of the Polish house of the Jagalos, Vladislav and his son Louis, each of whom, though incapable and unworthy of his position, became king of Bohemia and of Hungary at the same time. This profound parallelism, indicated by the mere external sequence and form of rule, becomes still more striking and symptomatic of deeper analogies when we turn to the social and political structure of the two kingdoms. In the last quarter of the 15th century, Bohemia consisted legally of Bohemia proper, together with the Margravate of Moravia, the Duchy of Silesia, and Lower Lusatia. Since the Peace of Olmutz in 1477, most of Moravia, Silesia, and Lusatia were under Hungarian sovereignty, Matthias Corvinus having forced Vladislav of Bohemia to cede these territories. The population of Bohemia was not over 400,000, and then, as now, it was made up of German and of Slav-speaking inhabitants. The Bohemians were settled in the center, and the Germans around them. Hungary was, in 1490, a very large kingdom, stretching from the eastern portion of the modern kingdom of Saxony through Silesia and Moravia to Hungary proper, occupying wide tracts of fortified lands on the Drava, Sava, Una, Bosna, and Drina, as far as the Aluda or Olt River, thus comprising large portions of modern Bosnia, Serbia, and of western Romania. The population of Hungary amounted, toward the end of the 16th century, to about 1,100,000. We may therefore assume that at the end of the 15th it had reached about 800,000. Venetian diplomatic agents were, it is true, repeatedly assured by the Maiars of the time of Vladislav, 1490-1516, that Hungary could muster an army of no less than 200,000 men. This assurance, however, cannot be taken as a basis for serious computations of the population, and undoubtedly possesses patriotic and political interest rather than any statistical value. Hungary was then, as it is now, the meeting ground of a very large number of nationalities. The towns were mostly inhabited by Germans, who, as a rule, could not even speak the language of their masters. The mountainous regions in the north were thinly inhabited by Slav peoples, those in the southeast by Romance-speaking Romanians, by Dalmatians, Serbians, Armenians, Cumanians, etc. All social and political prestige and power was with the Mayars, or, to speak more correctly, with the Mayar noblemen. The political structure of either country was likewise analogous to that of the other. In both, the aristocracy was the paramount element endowed with chartered or traditional privileges to the practical exclusion from political power of certain classes of citizens endowed with rights in the modern sense of the term. In Hungary, the ruling order was, in general terms, the nobility. It consisted of the great prelates of the church, Domini Prelatsi, Fopopak, the magnates, Barones et Magnates, Saslo Sorak es Orsagniak, and the common gentry, nobiles, nemeshek. 
To these three classes of personal nobles were, since 1405, added the corporate nobles of the free royal towns, Sabad Hirayi Baroshak, which, as corporations, enjoyed some of the rights of Hungarian nobility. Of the prelates, the first in dignity and power was the Archbishop of Estergom, in German, Gran, who was the primate of Hungary, the legatus natus of the Pope, and the Chancellor of the King. Next to him ranked the bishops of Eger, of Vesprem, of Agram, of Transylvania, and the abbot of Pannonhalma, in the county of Ger, Germanice Rab. The magnates were not, with just two exceptions, the Esterhazis and the Erdodis, distinguished from the common gentry in the way of title. For such titles as baron, count, or prince were first introduced into Hungary by the Habsburgs after 1526. They consisted of noblemen who were either very wealthy or incumbents of one of the great national offices of the country. In perfect keeping with the medieval character of the entire social and political structure of Hungary, these great offices implied immense personal privileges, rather than constituting their bearers definite organs of an impersonal state. The highest office was that of the Count Palatine, Reni Palatinus, Nador, the king's legal representative, and, when he was a minor, his legal guardian, judge and umpire on differences between king and nation, captain general of the country, and keeper of the king's records. After the Count Palatine followed the Judex Curiae Regiae, the Banus or Seneschal of Croatia, the Tavernacorum Regalium Magister, Fortarnicmester, or Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Vidoc or Seneschals of Transylvania and the minor border provinces on the Danube, and the Lord Lieutenants of the Counties, Fuispenach. The common gentry, about 15,000 families, consisted of persons forming the populace, as distinguished from the plebs. They alone possessed real political rights. They alone enjoyed the active and passive franchise. Their estates could not be taken away from them, a right called osiseg. They were exempt from taxation. They alone were the leading officials of the county government, and their chief duty lay in their obligation to defend the country against any enemy attacking it. Even in point of common law, they were, unlike Roman patrici or English gentry, in a position very much more advantageous than that allowed either to the urban population, called hospites, or to the rest of the unfree peasantry, jobayok. On this stock of privileged nobility was grafted a system of local and national self-government closely resembling that of England, although the similarity holds good far more with regard to the Hungarian county system than in respect of the diet. In the former, the local nobility managed all the public affairs with complete autonomy, and there was, especially in the 15th century, a strong tendency to differentiate each county as a province unconcerned in the interests of the neighboring counties, if not positively hostile to them. Intermunicipal objects, such as the common regulation of the unbridled Titsa River, proved as impossible of achievement as was the uniform assertion in all counties of recent legislative acts. Yet, it was the county organization, 
itself the outcome of the rapid conquest of all Hungary by one victorious people in the last decade of the ninth century, which preserved the unity of the Maiar kingdom. The Diet, or Sagulesh, on the other hand, differed from the English Parliament in two essential points. It consisted not of delegates or deputies, but of the mass of the nobles assembled in full arms on the field of Rakos near Budapest or elsewhere. Examples of delegates at diets are, it is true, not entirely unknown in the period preceding the disaster of Mohach, 1526, yet as late as 1495, and repeatedly in 1498, 1500, and 1518, special acts were passed in joining every individual noble to attend the diet in person. It may readily be seen that such an assembly possessed the elements neither of statesmanlike prudence nor of any sustained debate. The poorer members, always the great majority, soon tired of the costly sojourn far away from their homes and hastened back to their counties. The other essential difference from the English Parliament lay in the fact that down to the end of the period under review, 1526, the Hungarian Diet consisted of a single chamber only. Thus, both in structure and in function, the Diets, although very frequent, very busy, and very noisy, remained in a rudimentary state. This short sketch of the political constitution of pre-Reformation Hungary would, however, be incomplete without laying special stress on the fact that there was no trace of Western feudalism, either in the social or the political institutions of the country. Medieval, no doubt, the structure of Hungary was, even in the opening period of modern history. It was, however, a type of early, almost pre-feudal times, tempered by strong and wholesome elements of the modern national state. The adherence of Hungary to this medieval type rendered her less capable of progressing by the side of the far-advanced and modernized states of the West with anything like equal rapidity. The factors of national life, on the other hand, afforded her the possibilities of a greater, if belated, future. Thus, the Maiar kingdom stood in point of time between the Middle Ages and modern times, just as in point of space it lay between the Orient and the Occident. In Bohemia, again, only noblemen enjoyed the actual rights of full citizenship. However, owing to the constant intercourse between Bohemia and Germany, German feudal ideas penetrated into the Czech kingdom, and in the 15th century Czech noblemen were divided, not merely de facto as in Hungary, but de lege, as in Germany, into two classes, the Vladiks or magnates, in Czech also, Pani, Slektici, and the knights, in Czech, Ritirstvo, meaning the estate or order of the knights. The most important gentes of the Bohemian magnates were the Vitkavici, Hranovici, Vusici, Makwartici, to whom belonged in the 17th century the famous Wallenstein, Kunici, each branching off into a number of noble families, frequently with German names, Reisenberg, Schellenberg, etc., the tendency to make of the Vladiks or magnates a real caste, differing in rights, power, and prestige, not only from the burgesses and unfree classes, but also from the knights, was so strong and was so much aided by the terrible Hussite movement 
from which the magnates contrived to derive more benefit than any other section of the population, that by the end of the 15th century they had in Bohemia proper monopolized the whole government of the country and were possessed of most valuable and almost regal rights as lords on their estates. The Moravian high gentry, by a convention of 1480, entered on the statute book, actually went so far as to restrict the number of vladiks to 15, and thus practically established themselves as a closed caste. In Hungary, as we have seen, the magnates were never able to assert similar privileges at the expense of the ordinary gentry. The Bohemian peasantry in Czech, Sedlak, Rolnik, were, previous to the Hussite Wars, in a tolerable position, although there always was among them a very large number of villains and half-serfs. In Czech, chlap, sluch. The introduction of German law into Bohemia undoubtedly helped to mitigate the condition of the rural population. The burgesses of the towns, mostly Germans, played, as in Hungary and Poland, a very subordinate part and were admitted to the Diet only after the great Hussite upheaval in the middle of the 15th century. The Diet of Bohemia, Schniem, and that of Moravia were considerably better organized for efficient work than was the case with the Diet in Hungary. In Moravia, there were four estates, magnates, prelates, knights, and towns. In Bohemia, only three, the clergy having here as in England about the same time, disappeared as a separate estate from the Diet. The assemblies were not frequented by unmanageable numbers and were accordingly less tumultuous and more efficient than the national assemblies in Hungary. Yet the proper sphere of the influence wielded by the gentry was the Privy Council, Rada Zemska, where the Kmets, or Signoris, advised and controlled the king. When we reach the period specially treated here, we find Bohemia practically governed by a caste-like oligarchy, and uncontrolled either, as in Hungary, by a numerous and strong minor gentry, or as in England, by a strong king. From 1458 to 1490, Hungary had been ruled by King Matthias Corvinus, son of John Hunyadi, the great warrior and crusader. Matthias was, in many ways, the counterpart of his contemporary Louis XI of France, except that he surpassed the French ruler in military gifts. Both of them were, like so many of their fellow monarchs of that time, historical illustrations of Machiavelli's prince, unscrupulous, cold, untiringly at work, filled with great ambitions, orderly, systematic, and patrons of learning. Matthias, whom the popular legend in Hungary has raised to the heights of an ideally just ruler. King Matthias is dead, justice has disappeared, said the common people, had, as a matter of fact, made short work of many of the liberties and rights of his subjects. He controlled and checked the turbulent oligarchs with an iron hand, and his black legion of Hussite and other mercenaries, his standing army in a word, and as such an illegal institution in Hungary, was employed by him with the same relentless vigor against refractory Magyars as against Turks or Austrians. In his wars, he was particularly fortunate. On the Turks, he inflicted severe punishment, and his Herculean general, Paul Knizzi, aided by Stephen Batori, 
completely routed them at Kenyermezu near Sasvarosh, Rus, on the Maros River in Transylvania, October 13, 1479. It has already been seen how in 1477, Matthias, after a successful war against Vladislav of Bohemia, obtained by the Treaty of Olmutz the larger portion of the territory of the Bohemian crown. In 1485, the great Corvinus was still more successful. On May 23rd of that year, Vienna capitulated to him as victor over the Emperor Frederick III, and thus he added Lower Austria to his vast domain. Nor were his successes gained only by laborious fighting. His diplomatic activity was hardly less comprehensive and elaborate than were his numerous campaigns. Yet, with all his successes and triumphs, Matthias, like the Emperor Charles V at a later date, belongs to a class of rulers more interesting by their personality than important by reason of their work. Like Charles, Matthias triumphed over persons rather than over causes. He humbled nearly all of his opponents, and his statue or image was set up at Bautzen, as well as at Breslau in Vienna, and in the border fortress of Yaitza, far down in Bosnia. When on April 6, 1490, Matthias breathed his last, he left the interests of his only but illegitimate son, John Corvinus, and those of his realm, in so insecure a condition that no less than four or five rival candidates were striving for the crown which he had fondly hoped to secure for his amiable but weakly son. The oligarchs decided to confer the crown upon Vladislav of Bohemia, a prince of the Polish house of the Jagellos, whose indolent character promised well for their ardent desire of retrieving the ascendancy, which they had long since lost under Matthias' stern rule. The campaign of his competitor Maximilian, the emperor's son, broke down, while Vladislav's other competitor, his brother Albert, since 1592 king of Poland, was persuaded by him to withdraw. Thus began the period of Vladislav II's reign over Hungary, 1490 to 1516, during which the country, both at home and abroad, was rapidly falling into ruin. The king, commonly called Dobze Laszlo, from his habit of saying Dobze, all right, to everything, was a mere plaything in the hands of Thomas Bakoch, the all-powerful primate, of George Zakmari, the Bishop of Pesh, and of Americus Perenyi, the Palatine. This primate is the Hungarian Cardinal Wolsey. Like the great English prelate, he commanded all the resources of clerical subtlety and knew how to humiliate himself for a season. Like Wolsey, he aimed at the highest object of ecclesiastic ambition, the papacy, and because of the same fatal conflict within him, of two contradictory ambitions failed alike to render good service to his country and to fulfill his hierarchical aspirations. The court party centering on Bacoche was opposed by the adherents of the powerful house of the Zapolia, who, after Stephen Zapolia's death in 1499, put up his son John as the national candidate for the crown. John's friends, chiefly the childless and wealthy Lawrence Ulaki, counted on the king's imbecility in council and war, and finally John proposed to Vladislav repeatedly, and even in threatening fashion, a marriage between him and the king's first child, Anne. Vladislav, however, with the cunning that often accompanies dullness, contrived to obtain delay after delay, 
together with new treaty assurances from the Emperor Maximilian, until his French wife, Anne de Candal, a kinswoman of Louis XII, King of France, bore him in 1506 a son, Louis, whose birth put an end to the intrigues of John Zapolya. All through these years, the achievements in arms of the kingdom, if not of the king, were by no means altogether unsatisfactory. In the early years of Vladislav's reign, the old hero Paul Kinesi still continued to inflict heavy losses on the ever-aggressive Turk, and John Zapolya too earned some military glory. Ulaki's rebellion was put down by the king's general Dragfa in 1495. The internal dissensions, however, were sapping the very foundation of the kingdom, and in 1514, Hungary was afflicted with one of the terrible peasant revolts then not infrequent in Austria and Germany, which invariably led to the most inhuman as well as illegal treatment of the defeated peasants. A crusade against the infidel Turk, announced by Bakash as legate of the Pope, gave rise to vast gatherings of peasants and other poor people, who, on finding that the nobles refrained from joining them, took umbrage at this refusal and speedily turned their pikes on the nobility as their oppressors. A large number of noble families were cruelly and infamously murdered by the Hungarian Jacquerie, led by George Doja. The untrained masses of the insurgents, however, fell an easy prey to John Sapoli's soldiers. Doja was roasted alive, and the peasants were, by a special statute, degraded to everlasting serfdom. After the death of Vladislav II, March 1516, his son, a boy of ten years, became king under the name of Louis II. He had been brought up under the baneful influence of his cousin, Margrave George of Brandenburg, Prince of Jägerndorf, and knew only of untrammeled indulgence in pleasures and pastimes. Under such conditions, there was no vigorous reform to be expected, and the new sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, occupied in 1521 the important border fortresses of Sebash and Nandorf Erevar, Belgrade, after the Hungarian garrisons had exhausted every effort of the most exalted heroism. However, even the loss of these places, the two keys to Hungary, failed to produce a sensible change in the indolence and factiousness of the people. In vain was Verbatsi, an able and truly patriotic statesman made Palatine in 1525. In vain, good laws were passed to meet the imminent danger at the hands of the victorious sultan. The disaster of Mohach, August 29, 1526, described in an earlier chapter of this volume, showed but too clearly that the sultan's destructive plans were prompted and aided rather by the fatal disorganization of Hungary than by the number and valor of his troops. The Agelos ceased to exist, and at the same time an integral portion of Hungary, soon to be increased to one-third of the whole country, fell into the hands of the Turk. Other nations before this had suffered their Cannae, Hastings, or Agnadello, but either the victor was equal, if not superior, in degree of civilization to the vanquished, or the latter afterwards found means at home or abroad to shake off the torpor of defeat. Hungary, with the exception of Transylvania, was, after Mohach, not only defeated but paralyzed, and for three centuries she could not resume her historical mission, 
inasmuch as she was able to repel her foreign enemy only by the aid of her domestic oppressor, Austria, and of Austria's allies. Canet steeled Rome, and Hastings made England an organic part of Europe. Mohach buried the greater part of Hungary for more than nine generations. End of section 33. Recording by Colleen McMahon.